Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. This week's story tells the tale of a family ruled by a womanising tyrant and a crime that shocked the nation. This year's event took place in the year 1923. But what else happened? Well, on the 16th of February, archaeologist Howard Carter unseals the burial chamber of Tutankhamun, a pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt. On April 6th, Louis Armstrong makes his first recording, Chimes Blues, with King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. On June 18th, Mount Etna erupts in Italy, making 60,000 people homeless. And on November the 1st, the 1923 Victorian police strike begins in Australia, with half of the Victoria Police Force standing down over the use of labour spies. Rioting and looting take place in Melbourne City. But our story takes place in an area of Bristol called Brislington, which is just southeast of the centre, and the home of the Coopers. They were apparently a quiet couple who kept themselves to themselves. An unremarkable pair, the wife invariably cheerful and often to be heard singing as she worked around the house. There seemed to have been a particular bond between the mother and son. In fact, they were described as being wonderfully devoted. Their relationship more like brother and sister. George, the child, tended to call her Jin rather than mother. When George Jr. married a girl from Cheddar in 1921, the couple did what many newlyweds did in those days. They shared the parents' house, and within a year, their first child, little boy, was born. In 1923, another child was expected, and George Jr.'s wife went to stay with her parents in June, planning to return for the last trimester of her pregnancy in September. But, in the event, she remained in Cheddar, and her second boy was born there. She and the new baby remained there until three weeks before Christmas. Meanwhile, George's mother was looking after the older boy, whom she adored, at Montrose Avenue. Also living in the house was a lodger, Aubrey Baker, who had lived there since October 1922 and was an engineer employed by the Bristol Tramways Company. Both 37-year-old George and his father, who was 59 and called George Senior, 
followed the same trade, that of pattern makers initially at Bartlett's of Brislington. But when these works closed down, they both found similar employment at Sampson's Iron Foundry at Malaga Road, Bedminster. So, on the surface, a respectable, hard-working family living in a pleasant suburban villa called Croydon House, with French windows leading out to the garden. The windows hung with spotless curtains. A kitchen and scullery jutted out onto the garden where a chicken run had been constructed. But not all was as it seemed. George Cooper Sr. was a womaniser. He seemed to have had a taste for office cleaners by the looks of things and one liaison back in 1918 was with the woman engaged in such work at the tramways office where he was employed at the time. In 1923 he was enjoying an affair with a Mrs Goodman, charlady at Sampson's, who lived in South Street, Bedminster, and his wife was only too well aware of his flandering ways. Word of the Week And for this week's word, I give you... Selenophile, which is someone who loves the moon. And how did this hard-working wife, Louisa Cooper, find out about her husband's latest affair? Well... He paid for his mistress to go on the firm's outing. So Louisa went to the home of her husband's boss, Ernest Sampson, and made a complaint. But his affairs weren't her only problem. George was later to say that his father had always been an aggressive man who was not adverse to subduing Louisa by means of violence and had been known to knock her to the ground and drag her to the feet by her hair. He had also been abusive to George himself when George tried to defend his mother. Then, in September 1923, the situation changed. Mr Cooper was no longer seen setting off for work each day and returning when the mood took him. At first, Mrs Cooper told neighbours that he had gone away to work, but then she had to confess he had run off with another woman. Elizabeth Blackburn of 39 Garnet Street in Benminster was the sister-in-law of Louisa Cooper, the female prisoner. In court, Elizabeth said that on September the 9th, she saw both prisoners at their home. Young Cooper told my husband, John, that the deceased picked up an iron from the grate and either threw it or was going to throw it at him. Cooper Jr. said they fought together and his father left the house and had not returned. Mrs Cooper was present at the time this was said, but said nothing herself, though she cried. Elizabeth then went on to say how she had been shown some broken tea things in the coal hole as proof of the violent altercation. When George hadn't turned up for work for two days, Louisa went to the house of George's manager, Frank Ernest Sampson, who was the managing director of Sampson and Sons Limited, iron founders and engineers in Bedminster. She was very distressed and sobbing. 
She explained that George had been violently abusive to her on the Thursday night, calling her bad names and throwing china, tea things and the kettle at her. She said her son had stepped in to protect her and then her husband had grabbed his coat and stormed out and hadn't been seen since. Frank asked her whether George would take his own life and she replied that she didn't know. Frank saw George Jr. two days later on the 10th of September and asked him if he had heard anything of his father. The reply was no. He then asked if the police had been notified and George said no, but he would do it. During that conversation, George was asked if he was prepared to take over his father's work as the tools were still there and he said he would. He had often helped his father when it was busy, so he knew the job. George Jr. started immediately and left work at 5pm. Frank said at the inquest that George Sr. was employed by him for the past five years and during that time as an engineer pattern maker, cutting out patterns in wood to be moulded in iron. He had been an exceptionally good worker and a good character, but was quite quick to anger. He did not like to be found in the wrong if a mistake could be made. He was surly, secretive and stood alone. Autumn faded to winter and Christmas approached. One to anticipate with pleasure this year that there would be no arguments to disrupt the peaceful atmosphere. Friends and neighbours were invited round and George played tunes on the piano while everyone gathered around for a sing-song. It was probably the happiest Yuletide the family had ever experienced. But something was bothering George though, something gnawing at his conscience. By the end of January 1924, George Jr. felt he had to confide in someone, and he chose his uncle on his mother's side, George Blackburn. His mother and her brother were close, and she would go to visit him at least every other week. George Cooper arrived at his uncle's house in Sandown Road at about 8.30 on the evening of the 29th of January, accompanied by his cousin, George Blackburn Jr. He said to his relatives that there had been one or two upsets, and his father had gone. He then added, I have put him in a position that he won't come back again. His aunt asked him to clarify this statement and was told, We had a row with father, and it had to be him or me. She replied, What do you mean to say, George? And after a long pause, he finally said, I killed my father. Burdened by this terrible knowledge, the Blackburns had been placed in an untenable position. The following day, the son decided to ask the advice of a friend of his, another George Paul, who ran a fried fish shop in Redcliffe Hill. He was an ex-policeman, and he knew immediately that his only option was to inform the authorities, and the following day, when George Cooper arrived home from work, he was cautioned and placed under arrest. His mother had already been charged with being an accessory after the fact in the murder of her husband. 
mother and son appeared the following morning in the Cainchim Petty Sessional Court. After the hearing, Louisa was taken to Cardiff jail. As she was taken away, she called to her son. Have I got to leave you? Let me share it. It is my fault. It is my fault. Meanwhile, the police were searching the house and soon began paying particular attention to the middle downstairs room where George had been doing some repairs to the flooring after his mother had complained to Henry Paul, the landlord, who lived in Chatsworth Road, that some joists needed replacing, but George would see to it himself. Mr Poole assumed it was her husband to whom she referred, but a few days later, George Jr. had called at his house with a similar story and was told he could go and purchase some timber and sort out the problem himself, and he would be recompensed. In the end, George claimed 17 shillings spent on wood but refused labour costs and money he had spent on the tar used to seal the ends of the joints. On the 10th of January, 1924, he officially took over the tenancy, saying he had heard nothing from his father. Book of the Week This week's book only came out last month, so it's very, very new. And I was very excited about it because it's about a subject that we've already covered. It's called The Doctor's Blackwell. How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine by Janice P. Nimura. It talks about how Elizabeth Blackwell believed from an early age that she was destined for a mission beyond the scope of ordinary womanhood. Not only does it tell the story about her trials and woes of studying medicine in America, but also how she became in 1849 the first woman in America to receive an MD. But she was soon joined in her iconic achievement by her younger sister, Emily, who was actually the more brilliant physician. And in this, you get everything you want from a biography, extensively researched and well-written, and the history of the Blackwells and the 19th century medicine as a whole is presented in an extremely readable fashion. The narrative weaves together some many big names of the times and also talks about other things that were going on at the time, like women's suffrage. The trial itself took place in Wells, and the accused said in a clear voice, I am not guilty. His mother, who had been bailed, looked strained, nervous, and tearful. Mr. Emmanuel for the Crown opened the proceedings by giving a brief background picture of the family, ending with the information that the victim had been last seen by his friend, a man called Sims, on the 6th of September, 1923, after they had spent some time on their allotments, paused for a glass of beer, and then said goodnight to each other at about 8pm. Cooper was seen walking off in the direction of his home at that time. The accused then took the stand, describing in detail the quarrel that had taken place that night over a woman from Goodhine Street, whom his father had threatened to move into the house after throwing out his son. The son, George William Cooper, then aged 37, described as slimly built with light hair, came home at about 3.45pm 
on the 6th of September 1923 and his father, George Sr., immediately started shouting and arguing with him. This was his life, but this time he saw cups and saucers had been smashed and the food left for his dinner was in the coal house. He asked his father what was going on, to which his father replied, When your mother comes home, she will know what the reason is. At that, the father picked up a cast-iron fender ornament in the shape of a cow and threatened to throw it through his son's head. He then went on to talk about a woman he was planning on bringing to the house and, as the argument got more heated, George Sr. launched himself at his son, still clutching the ornament. In a bid to try and protect himself, George Jr. kicked his father in the leg and his father dropped the ornament and fell on the floor flat onto his face. When he got up, he said in a voice dripping with hatred, Your swine of a mother put you up to do this. When he heard this, George Jr., having such a close relationship with his mother, defended her, saying she was no swine, and if his father said that again, he would go for him. The reply to that was, I will do tonight what I've intended to do for some time. I've got a woman in South Street. And with that, George Sr. left the house. Later that same day, George Jr. was in the kitchen, trying to calm down after the altercation with his father. When he heard footsteps, he looked up into the mirror that happened to be in front of him, and he could see his father creeping into the room behind him. Just before his father rushed at him and said, Got you! The son managed to get out of the way just in time, and made a dive for his father, grabbing his arm. They struggled until the son managed to wrestle the weapon from his now insanely angry father. And that's when it flashed into his mind that only one of them was going to survive this time. And what happened next was committed in a fit of madness. The tension in the courtroom was tangible as George Jr. recalled what happened that fateful night. I hit my father a blow with the hatchet on his head as hard as I could hit it. He dropped down, I I fell on him and struck him several blows. My father was killed and I killed him. My mother was out. When she returned, she asked me what was the matter and I told her I'd had a row with father and that he had gone out. And finally she went to bed. I thought over what I should have to do. I went to her bedroom and I sat on the side of the bed and said, I have killed father. Before mother came home, I put a sack round the head of my father and dragged him into the fowl house and there I think he remained for a day? I believe I told my mother that I killed him. I told her not to go into the fowl house. I fastened up the middle room door with a nail so that no one should go in, and sometime, possibly about a week later, I buried him in the middle room about five feet under the floor. I told mother she was not to go into the room, and she never went into the room again, to my knowledge, until she had the boards laid down. My mother knew nothing about it until I went to her bedroom and told her. My own wife was away in Cheddar and did not know anything until last night. The body of George William Cooper 
lay beneath the boards of the very room where his wife and son had celebrated Christmas with friends and neighbours to the accompaniment of many a well-loved tune on the piano, positioned over his grave. Those present at the soiree dined out on the tale for many years afterwards. Henry Paul, owner of 30 Montrose Avenue, the house in which the Coopers lived and where the incident took place, said that on the 31st of January, he went with Superintendent Ford and other officers to the house. He went into the back room on the ground floor and the first thing the police did in his presence was to remove the furniture. The police proceeded to remove the lino floor and a quantity of newspapers which had been laid beneath. The officer who made the arrest, Sergeant Carter, said that when he examined the house, he lifted an oilcloth in the room to see the floorboards and noticed that some were freshly sawn and had been re-nailed with wire or French nails, and the sergeant, with the aid of a pickaxe, raised the boards. That's when the police dug the soil, and at about four feet, there was a layer of tar. Spades were then used to remove the earth, The pick was not used afterwards as the soil was quite loose. The police dug down about four and a half feet before they came to the body and the earth around it was scraped away with their hands. The head lay in a small tunnel from which the officers scraped the earth, again using their hands. The body, which was decomposed, was exposed now and a layer of lime lay over it. The lower extremities had no clothing, but there was a shirt and waistcoat on the trunk of the body. There were no wrappings around the head, so you could clearly see the damage. The whole of the top of the skull was knocked off and the bones reduced to small fragments. When charged with the murder of his father with malice afterthought, George replied, I should like to say that it was not by malice aforethought. I did it partly in my own defence because my father would have killed me. And in a bid to try and reduce the charge to manslaughter from murder, their defending solicitor said that the onus of proof of justification lay with the prisoner. There was also some dispute as to whether some of the marks had been made when actually removing the body from its temporary grave, but this seemed unlikely in view of the forensic evidence. It was noted in court that the initial examination of the body by Dr Alexander Cochrane of Kensington Hill, Brislington, was not very thorough. The skull was produced in court and Mrs Cooper held her handkerchief over her eyes so she wouldn't have to see it. It was pointed out on the skull that there was an area of disease in the lower part of the aorta. The right jawbone was fractured in addition to the two fractures of the lower jaw. There was an opinion that the fractured skull was the probable cause of death. And one of the fragments of the skull, which he did handle at the time, had a clean, straight-edged cut in it. In his opinion, it was impossible to say whether the fractures to the skull were caused before or after death. In court, Mr J. H. Watson, who represented the prisoners, asked the coroner, My suggestion is this, that these fractures 
and pieces of skull you examined then were produced and caused by the police in digging out the pit using picks and shovels. I do not think so. I saw no evidence on the body of any injury, pick or shovel. The skull was so smashed up that, with decomposition, pieces could be detached on being removed. Shockingly, a complete autopsy wasn't performed, and no evidence was initially given as to the state of the body, so the Treasury stepped in and had the remains secretly exhumed from the Brislington Church Cemetery on Monday the 18th of February 1924. It took two hours before the coffin could be retrieved and taken to the Bristol Central Mortuary, where Dr Bernard Spilsbury, the eminent pathologist, was to conduct a more thorough examination. This autopsy lasted over three hours. And the conclusion of which, Sir Bernard Spilsbury said, he thought fractures five and six might have been caused by either the pickaxe or the corner of a spade while sticking up the body. Are you tired of seeing the latest social media trends and fearing the worst? Does the daily news bring you down? Are you looking for something new and fun to listen to? Well, well that's, that's where, where we, we come, come in. in. Hi. Hi. It's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host The Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we present a fictional story utilizing the hottest happenings in the world and bring it straight to your earbuds. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just go to anchor.fm slash evertrendingpod and subscribe today. None of the witnesses called seem to have anything good to say about the deceased, describing him as surly, hasty-tempered and adverse to any sort of criticism. He openly boasted about his conquests over women, even discussing a particular situation with the lodger, Aubrey Baker, when they were having a pint together one night at the Hollybush. He told Baker that he thought he'd got another woman pregnant and his wife had found out about it. Baker was shocked because he liked and admired Louisa Cooper, whom he considered to be a good housewife and one who attends to her home. He thought too that young Cooper was a nice, quiet young fellow. Louisa's brother, George Blackburn, recalled many times he had seen her sporting a black eye and had threatened Cooper with a good hiding. He said Cooper was a man who preferred throwing things rather than fighting and had been convicted in the past of throwing a brick at a man. He was frequently known to smash up crockery, musical instruments and ornaments in the house and was quite blatant about his extramarital affairs, even once bringing a woman round to stay the night in the family home and insisted his wife wait on her. As she left court, Louisa sobbed. Try to forgive my son. The jury retired on the Friday afternoon, and it was announced that sentencing would take place on the Saturday. The night must have been tense for both George and his mother. At the end of the proceedings, the judge said to George, I have considered this case very carefully and I am always desirous of being as merciful as I can in these kind of cases. But in this instance, I cannot get over the evidence of Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who, not for the first time, 
has been of great assistance in the administration of justice. I cannot get over the fact that the injuries to the deceased man were most savage injuries. That is why I cannot treat this case lightly, although I accept what the jury said, that there was provocation. I cannot do less than sentence you to seven years penal servitude. At the end, it was almost as if everyone felt that George had done a favour by ridding society of such an obnoxious man. The house in Montrose Avenue still stands, although the road has been renamed, and the case is still spoken of by older residents who remember the family, and the shock of hearing the tale of the degradation and misery suffered by the well-liked Mrs Cooper, which finally tipped her son over the edge on the night of the 6th of September, 1923, becoming one of the most shocking suburban killings that Bristol had ever known. Back in the day facts. On the 13th of February in 1950, English rock singer and songwriter Peter Gabriel was born. Also on the 13th, but in 1982, the tallest woman in history, 17-year-old Zheng Jinlian of Hunan Province, China, died. She was 8 foot 1 inch tall. On the 14th of February in 1807, eight people were fined by magistrates in Bristol for not sweeping the pathway outside their homes. And on the 15th of February in 1965, the area finals of the Miss England Beauty Contest, planned to be held at a club in Clifton, Bristol, were cancelled because there were only two contestants. On the 18th of February 1904, a group of artists calling themselves the Bristol Savages were established. They still meet during the winter. In today's update about the coronavirus, it has been noted that with nail salons, hair salons, waxing centres and tanning places closed, things could get ugly out there. What a huge story and a huge thank you has to go out to all those who helped make it that much better by bringing it to life. There was Marcus KP and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio as well as Carrie Ball, Molly Jeffries, Joe Wilson, Heidi Hicks Wilson and Tony Allen. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. 
By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.